This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, September the 10th, 2021. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday to you. I'm broadcasting live from Nashville, Tennessee. Glad to be here. Always great to be in this very fun town. Hope that you are enjoying your day. Thank you always for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's our time slot here. Many ways to listen live, including at GuyBensonShow.com or through Odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y. If you miss any of the broadcast as it airs live, there's a free podcast every day, and it's really been growing. You can get that at GuyBensonShow.com, download, subscribe, lots of options, or FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. On today's show, later this hour, Chris Wallace, anchor of Fox News Sunday. He's got a new book coming out we want to ask him about. It has to do with... Osama bin Laden. And of course, tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So the timing works well in terms of this book. We will ask him about it. He also has an exclusive sit-down with Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, who's been pressured among progressives maybe to head for the exits, look for the uh, retirement button. We'll talk to Chris about that, plus his reflections on 9-11. And... Perhaps we'll get to the president's speech from yesterday. I have more thoughts on that coming up in just a moment. But that's Chris Wallace, our colleague, later this hour. In the next hour, Andy McCarthy will be here. He was a federal prosecutor in Lower Manhattan on 9-11. He is an expert on global terrorism. And we will get his thoughts on this 20th anniversary that will be marked across the country tomorrow. I will also... Ask Andy and draw on his constitutional experience and knowledge to see what his analysis is about President Biden's announced mandate that they are going to try to implement the federal government on private businesses when it comes to vaccines. We heard the president make that announcement yesterday in the live speech that we carried. We reacted to it in real time just after the president spoke. And I promise we would get a constitutional scholar on the show today. Andy is a very sharp legal mind, so we will put those questions to him in our next hour. And in our final hour, we will welcome into the show a 9-11 family, a wife and a son who lost a husband and a father that day, nearly 20 years ago. When we talk about the bumper sticker, never forget, and we attach that to 9-11, 
I think it is the responsibility and the duty of people in my position to make sure that we actually don't forget. And we don't forget by listening to these stories and remembering them and thinking about them. And I think it's our duty collectively as a country to remember what happened that day, to not look away from the terror and the grief, even if it's just once a year. And I am confident that when you hear from our guests in the final hour of this show today, if you are old enough to remember that day, it will bring back some memories. And if you aren't old enough to remember that day, I think you should listen. Uh, In particular, I think you should listen. So that's the roadmap here on this Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Let's start with a Fox News alert. COVID stats in the United States, 40.7 million confirmed COVID cases in America since March or so of 2020, cumulatively. And for the reasons that we have described ad nauseum, the real number, the full case count in the United States is much higher than that. The death toll in the U.S. from COVID is now 656,447. I know we give that stat every day at the start of the show. And maybe you sort of just blow past it in your own mind. Say, okay, yep, he's doing the stats. We'll get the Dow here in a second. Then we'll get into the monologue. I just want you to pause and listen to that number again. 656,447 Americans have died of this virus during this pandemic. And I remember in the somewhat early days last spring when Fauci and Burks came out in the White House briefing room and they put up that graphic on the screen where they projected possibly, what was it, 200 or 250,000 Americans might die from COVID. And it was just such a, a shock, I think, to so many people to see numbers that high. Well, we're well past that. We're more than double the high end of that estimate already. Cases and hospitalizations and deaths seem to be coming back down in a lot of the hot spots, thank goodness. But that is a very, very high number. And of course, around the world, it's millions of people. Millions of people have died from this disease. And we don't really know exactly where it came from or how it started because the government of the Chinese Communist Party, that, that group, that cabal in Beijing, they have seen to it that we, as far as they're concerned, may never know. That's what they hope. And that's why I think the origins matter so much. That's why we're not letting go of questions like the lab leak theory, which seems entirely credible, viable, perhaps likely at this point. It's why gain-of-function research questions and who funded it, it's not something that we can just say, oh, well, that's in the past. Let's just take some people's word for it. No. We need a full accounting, not only to prevent more catastrophes like this in the future 
and millions of human lives being taken from us is no small thing. Right, 9-11, the anniversary is tomorrow, one of the biggest news events and stories and incidents that have sort of been formulative for me, have shaped my life and my worldview. I think for a lot of people, you'd put the pandemic right up there with it. It might be the biggest story, given all the implications of my lifetime, even including 9-11. Very different, obviously. And to just sort of let go of how it started, who was responsible, at least for covering it up, if not worse, I think we have a responsibility to think about that and ask the toughest questions all the time until we get answers. And I feel like with our short attention span, collectively, we've sort of moved away from it. We were banned from talking about the lab leak for months. Then we had a brief few weeks where it was all the rage and everyone was asking questions and talking about it. The polling shifted, so I think most Americans now believe that it's true. I don't blame them. And then we've just kind of gone on to the next thing. Even though the pandemic is actively killing people right now, still, In any case, I did not anticipate going off on that little rant here at the top of the show. But it does segue into something that I wanted to mention from the president's speech yesterday. He said a lot of things. I supported a few of the things that he said. I did not support other things. I was not a fan of the tone, the tenor, the political nature of it. I think the last few big speeches he's given on Afghanistan and COVID have been, frankly, terrible. And I have lost confidence in him. And my opposition to him has grown as a result of both. One line that stuck out to me, we will get to both the politics and the constitutional implications of the mandates, right? That's a huge story. We're going to get to that later. As I mentioned, Andy McCarthy will join us. I want to start, though, with this line, which, again, I think does such a grave disservice to the way that we discuss COVID and the path forward in this country. And I mentioned it very fleetingly with Josh Krasauer in our post-speech analysis last evening. Listen to this again. This is cut 11, the president, yesterday. The bottom line, we're going to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated co-workers. We're going to reduce the spread of COVID-19 by increasing the share of the workforce that is vaccinated in businesses all across America. We're going to protect vaccinated people from unvaccinated people. And I just want to be as clear as I can. Vaccinated people are protected from unvaccinated people and from the virus. The vaccines are the protection. Let me say that again. Vaccinated people are protected. The vaccines are what's protecting them. And they work incredibly well. Now, yes, you can make certain arguments. For example, well, Guy, what about some of these communities where the vaccination rates are low 
and the hospitals fill up and the ICU beds fill up, and then you have vaccinated people who might need treatment for any number of illnesses and they can't get it or they have to fly somewhere else because their hospital is full, that's an impact on vaccinated people by unvaccinated people. Okay, true. That has happened. It has not been a widespread you know, issue or a widespread problem, but it has happened, and it is very disturbing and really inexcusable, in my view. And I think that's why there is a lot of frustration with people who have chosen not to get vaccinated. I think that's the wrong call for a lot of reasons that we talk about all the time on this show. With very few exceptions, I think everyone, certainly adolescent and up, or, you know, 18 and over, should get vaccinated. So there are ripple effects. There are potentially some negative consequences for vaccinated people because of the choices of unvaccinated people. That example that I gave you, you know, it's not unheard of, but it is not a widespread problem. Well, you might ask, Guy, what about breakthrough cases? Right? You had a breakthrough case. Yes, I did. We talked about it here on the show. Breakthrough cases, thank God, we see from the data, are very rare. I will come back to that in a second. And if you do have the misfortune, as I did, of getting a breakthrough case, it wasn't that bad of a misfortune because I had basically a cold. And the range tends to be, for vaccinated people who get a breakthrough case, something from a mild cold to the flu, which we all live with in our normal lives every day. We don't panic when we have a cold or the flu under normal circumstances. And what the vaccines have done is they've taken what could be a hospitalization event or a death event and brought it down to a mild, brief illness, from which, in my case, I recovered pretty quickly. And then that's what the data shows is true for the overwhelming majority of these breakthrough cases. But because there were some breakthrough cases and some of them were high profile and the CDC put out some data that said, oh, gosh, the viral loads might be the same between vaccinated and unvaccinated people once they've contracted the the virus. Maybe there's no difference. And I think that little tidbit of information was vastly misinterpreted by a lot of people. And then the stories proliferated about, oh, this breakthrough case, and I know this person, and of of course there are a lot of breakthrough cases that have occurred. But David Leonhardt in the New York Times, who does some valuable work on COVID, he put out a piece, a, a detailed analysis just a few days ago, saying that the more data has become available about breakthrough cases, the true picture looks less alarming, I'm reading now. Yes, Delta has increased the chances of getting COVID for almost everyone. But if you're vaccinated, a COVID infection is still uncommon. And those high viral loads are not as worrisome as they initially sounded. How small are the chances of the average vaccinated American contracting COVID? The data shows probably about one in 5,000. And in a highly vaccinated area or community, the chances are lower, probably more like less than one in 10,000. So for President Biden to try to frame all of this 
and the new mandates and the scolding and the lecturing tone and all of it as protecting vaccinated people from unvaccinated people, it sends a message that the government and the president doesn't actually believe that the vaccines work very well because vaccinated people need protection from other people. There are complicating factors that I just tried to spell out to be intellectually honest, but the bottom line has to be, because it's true, the vaccines work incredibly well at protecting people who are fully vaccinated from negative, serious, severe outcomes from COVID. And the president and others continue to undermine that reality and muddy the waters on a regular basis. And I really think it is deeply irresponsible. A few more thoughts on this when we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show on a Friday. Stay with us. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. I always give the caveat when we're talking about COVID and I'm frustrated with the government or mandates. I mentioned that I'm fervently and passionately pro-vaccine, probably to the point that some of you are sick of it, but why is that the case? Well, here's a New York Post story. Between January 1st and August 30th of this year, about 99% of hospital admissions for COVID were among those Americans who had not been fully inoculated in the same time period so the beginning of the year through the end of august roughly 99 percent of the people who lost their lives to covid 19 who died were not vaccinated that's why i'm pro-vaccine the vaccines work incredibly well particularly at staving off bad outcomes like having to go to the hospital or in you know on life support put on a ventilator or, or death. The overwhelming majority of people who've had those bad outcomes this year have been unvaccinated people, which is why it drives me up the wall when the president comes out and tries to justify what seems to be a big power grab on vaccine mandates as saying we have to protect vaccinated people against unvaccinated people. That is the opposite. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share framing 
of the way that we ought to be communicating about the efficacy and safety of the vaccines. But that's Joe Biden, political tone deaf. It's the Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. Happy Friday. I'm Guy Benson. With me now is Chris Wallace, anchor of Fox News Sunday. Check your local listings. You can also watch on the replay on Fox News Channel later in the day. He's also a best-selling author and has a new book out now, Countdown Bin Laden, the untold story of the 247-day hunt to bring the mastermind of 9-11 to justice. And, of course, tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Chris, welcome back. Good to be back. Give us, if you would, the elevator pitch for your book, especially, you know, given the the news hook and tomorrow's anniversary. Why would you recommend someone pick up a copy of Countdown Bin Laden? God bless you, Guy. That's a great question. (laughs) Tough question for you. Hard hitting. It's because it is a heck of a good read. It's a it's a. It's a history thriller, and, you know, even though people know what happened uh, with bin Laden, everybody I know who's read it says that the last hundred pages, it's a page turner, and they're saying, what happens next? Because we tell the story, it's all factually based, deeply researched, talk to people who've never talked before, have facts in it that nobody's ever heard before, but we tell it as a story, and with all the uncertainty, starting when uh, the CIA gets the first tip about this compound. They don't know if bin Laden is in it. It goes to the White House, and they're, you know, trying to figure out what to do, and the, and the SEALs are brought in, and now the SEALs are on the helicopter headed to the compound, and they think it's a one-way ticket, a suicide mission. So first of all, it's just a great read, if he said modestly. Secondly, <laughs> I think particularly because of how badly things have gone in the last month, that that the fact that this book recounts what we did right in Afghanistan. The main reason we went in was to get bin Laden to decapitate al-Qaeda and to se- severely degrade and eliminate the threat of a terror attack from Afghanistan. And for 20 years, we did that. So I think it's an important book and, and, and an entertaining book. And I very much plan to read it. I'm eager to do so. And again, the, the title of that book, if you want to go pick it up, Countdown Bin Laden. And... I referenced, Chris, tomorrow's anniversary. Where were you? What were you doing 20 years ago tomorrow? I was working at ABC. I'm at home. Somebody calls me and says, there's been a terrible accident. A plane has flown into the World Trade Center. I turn on the TV, watch uh, the second plane go in. Obviously, we all know then that it's it's not an accident. It's a terror attack. And as I head into ABC offices, the bureau in Washington, uh, I I see this horrible black plume of smoke on the southwest horizon, which, of course, was the the third plane that had hit the Pentagon. I remember when I heard that news and that came across the screen on the crawl, I was watching TV at my high school at the time, and the Pentagon, having been attacked, really freaked me out because – 
that was the moment where I realized not only was this a horrific, deadly attack in one city, this was ongoing, and they had they had somehow managed to hit you know, the 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 power base of the United States military, the headquarters of the United States military. That was sort of a a panic inducing moment, at least for a period of time for me. Chris, I was actually at the very top of the show, ended up going down a bit of a rabbit hole about COVID. I would have said before last March, I would have said without hesitation that the biggest news story of my lifetime, formative, something that changed my perspective, was 9-11. Now with the pandemic, I don't, I don't think you can really compare pair the stories necessarily because one is a, you know a murderous terrorist attack another is a virus of course a, a terrible death toll from both just quite different i wonder how you think about these things and contextualize what would maybe count as the biggest story of your lifetime and is it is it even a, a reasonable question to ask to compare and contrast such massive events well, any question is reasonable to ask. That's why you and I are in this business. Um, you know, they're so different, and I haven't asked it, but, but you know, I think the thing that you'd say about both of them is that they just have changed our lives. You know, when I think of just our daily life and, and how it has changed since 9-11, uh, the, the way you go to the airport, uh, the, the, the precautions that are taken when you go into a building, yeah. That the the thought in your mind, the fact that terrorism, instead of being something that happens to other people in other countries, can happen anywhere to anybody, um, and 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 you know the pandemic, my lord, you know I can remember for years seeing pictures of, frankly, a lot of people in Asia wearing masks during the winter or something, and thinking, isn't that a silly thing to do? I fully intend to wear a mask this this winter. Um, you know, it, it again, it changes our lives. And, uh, and you know, the, the one thing I will say, and I think it's why we have evolved as a race, as a species, is that we find a way to adapt to it. These things that seem unthinkable at the time, things that, you know, I remember after 9-11 and going to an airport and TSA and metal detectors and all of that stuff. Now you just kind of take it for granted. And, and you know, which is great in a way and sad in a way that you, you, we've, we've taken that for granted. I remember when... You know, you people, cars used to drive past on Pennsylvania Avenue. It was just a regular road past the White House. And now, you know, it's, it's, it's eliminated to all traffic and is kind of a fortress. Um, you know, all these things change our lives, and, and it never goes back. It never gets better after that. It just, it, that's just the new reality we live with. On that score, the new reality, and as we try to muddle through and new normals start to arise and become sort of ensconced in our everyday uh, routines. What did you make yesterday of the president's speech and his announcements in particular on vaccine mandates? Well, you know, I'm, I've mixed feelings, I guess. On the one hand, you know, we're going to talk a lot about 9-11, and rightly so, and the terrible loss from 9-11. You were talking about the terrible loss. The fact is, in terms of deaths, we have a 9-11 Every two days in this country now, 3,000 people are dying every two days. That's how many people were killed total in, in, in 9-11. And, you know, so that the scale of loss, the fact that we're up well over 600,000 just in America, is, is astonishing. 
Uh, and, you know, and I understand the frustration. Frankly, I feel it myself that people aren't getting vaccinated. I, I would like to be able to put this behind us and to the degree that uh, uh, roughly a third or a quarter of the country isn't vaccinated, it makes it harder to do that. On the other hand, you know, I, I, the idea of the government mandating things, you know, I, you know, I have mixed feelings. As, I, as a kid going in school, and I assume it's still true today, I can remember going to public school in uh, New York in the 1950s. You, your parents had to show that you'd been vaccinated against the, the childhood diseases. So, I mean, that was a mandate. And nobody yeah, still true. Of it. Uh, th- this seems... This seems different, but I, in a way, I suppose it isn't. So, um, you know, I understand people being concerned about it, but I also really understand the, the, the loss of life and people wanting to be protected from this disease. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I wish I had a great, wise answer. I'm of mixed minds about it. Yeah, and I think some of it also comes down to constitutional authority, you know, the federal government. And also the repeated insistence that they weren't going to do something like this. They weren't going to try to mandate the vaccines at the federal level, including just a few weeks ago they were saying this, and then they turn around and they do it. I think there's a lot of suspicion out there, and especially among, I would say, a lot of the unvaccinated. I'm not sure that this helps if the goal is to compel or persuade people I don't know. And we just talked about in the last segment how you know, President Biden's out there saying we want to protect vaccinated people from unvaccinated people. That also seems like it, it uh, deteriorates some confidence in the efficacy of the vaccines, which are extremely efficacious. We could go on and on about that, Chris. Before we let you go, I know you've got a lot of interviews with this new book out, which I'll remind everyone is Countdown Bin Laden. You have a big interview this weekend with an associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court who's gotten quite a lot of attention, especially on the left in recent months. Tell us about your sit-down with Justice Breyer. Yeah, um, I did sit down with Justice Breyer. He's got a new book out, too, and it's fascinating. Um, It's called The Authority of the Court and the Peril of Politics, and one of the things he talks about is to the degree that the court is seen as a political institution— it lessens its acceptance and therefore its authority. Um, we talk about everything. We talk about the court. We talk about whether he's going to retire and why he didn't. We talk about why the court re- refused to hear the, the Trump election challenges, uh, the idea of stacking, packing the court, which some Democrats have called for. Uh, it's a, he's a fascinating man, whether you agree with his his judicial philosophy or not. We talk a lot about the difference between textualism and what are called purposes and consequences and how political justices are. Uh, I, I promise you, it's a very interesting interview when you get an insight into a very interesting man, whether or not you think uh, he's, he's a wise jurist or uh, a, 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 a wild overreacher. I'm more in the latter category, you won't be surprised to learn, but I think someone who gets to that position in uh, our system is worth listening to, even when you disagree with them, and I look forward to Sunday's interview, that full interview airing on Fox News Sunday with Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, who's got a book out competing with Chris Wallace's Countdown Bin Laden, available now. I will be reading it in short order. Chris, good luck with the book. Hope it'll be another bestseller for you, and we look forward to having you back here. Guy, thanks so much. Appreciate it. 
You bet. Chris Wallace on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. A fresh take on the biggest stories of the day. It's Guy Benson. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. As we return on the Guy Benson Show, I want to get back to COVID and some of my thoughts about the president's speech. A bit scattershot here because I dithered at the top of the show and got sidetracked, although I think that was sort of an interesting thought to explore, which is why I went down the path that I did. But there are a few more points that I wanted to get to, and I will do so here, specifically about Biden asserting that this is about protecting the vaccinated from the unvaccinated. And on the the mandate stuff and the constitutionality, we will get to that as well. And the hypocrisy, we've got a few more sound bites to play for you. That's coming up in the next hour. But there's a doctor that I follow on social media, Pradeep Shankar. And he clearly is very frustrated as am I, I think a lot of Americans are, and the Gallup polling shows that a lot of Americans at the very least are confused and not uh, terribly confident in the public health messaging coming out of the government and the CDC specifically. I think when the president with his huge megaphone right, and just massive platform, when he uses the bully pulpit to come out and in fact sort of seethe at unvaccinated Americans and wag his finger and talk about patients running out and then taking, I would say, demagogic shots at political opponents in ways that are unfair. That is beneath the type of tone that he promised, especially on something like COVID. But he can't help himself. This is a desperate White House right now. And so the president's lashing out. He's angry. As I said, it reminded me of his bad Afghanistan speech. So Dr. Shankar Notice a lot of the same the same things that I did. And he vented a bit about it in a Twitter thread. And I think he's exactly right. Here's part of what he wrote. He said Biden and Walensky, etc., have completely, utterly failed on their vaccine messaging. First, it was get vaxxed. It will end the pandemic. Then it was a Johnson & Johnson might cause this very rare side effect. Let's pull it off the market. Then they went back to masks for some reason. Now it appears to be vaccines sort of work, but sort of don't. That has been their message all summer. And this mandate basically reinforces the idea that vaccines aren't going to end the pandemic. They are a complete, utter mess, he says, of the Biden administration. As for the quote that I played, and let's just hear it again in cut 11 to remind you. The bottom line. We're going to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated co-workers. We're going to reduce the spread of COVID-19 by increasing the share of the workforce that is vaccinated in businesses all across America. The doctor writes, talk about bad messaging. Biden is saying the vaccine does not work. That is literally his message. That is what many people hear. Because if it worked, the vaccine would protect you from the unvaccinated. This is precisely my point. This doctor also notes, and I had forgotten this, 
right? This is the the competent adult administration. Would you would you believe that President Joe Biden here in September of 2021 still has not nominated someone to lead the FDA? You might think that would be a top priority given the I don't know, global pandemic that's killing thousands of us every day still. One more note that is tangentially related, but it comes back to one of my hobby horses when it comes to COVID, which is the canyon of a gap separating, especially in America. It's not true in a lot of our sort of allied countries, especially over in Europe and in the U.K., But here in the United States, there is a canyon between the data and the evidence about children and COVID and the rhetoric and the policies and the panic and the freak out in our discourse about it. And on that front, I want to highlight a report from the United Kingdom. This is an official study on vaccination impacts. So they studied very carefully with a very broad swath of people the impact of the vaccines on cases, hospitalizations, and deaths in England. And this doctor over there, and this was highlighted by Josh Krasauer, our uh, friend and uh, friend of the show here who's frequently on, he joined us yesterday. Two things stand out. These are the big takeaways from this study, from this report. Number one, vaccines work astoundingly well, which goes back to the point that I made in a previous segment with even more data to prove it. And it's the number one reason why I have been begging people to get vaccinated. And I cannot stand it when the president of the United States sort of says things that would make it seem like the vaccines don't really work that well. They work astoundingly well. That's takeaway number one. Takeaway number two, listen to this. Unvaccinated children have a lower risk of death than even fully vaccinated adults of any age. So fully vaccinated younger adults have almost no risk of death from COVID because of the vaccines and because of natural immunity and because they're younger, healthier people. Adults of any age fully vaccinated They are overwhelmingly protected against death from COVID. But children who are not vaccinated, their likelihood of death from COVID is even lower. Our kids, thank God, are basically vaccinated completely against this disease by virtue of their age. We need to treat things that way and shape our policy that way. And yet it seems like we don't or can't or won't. Another hour coming up. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. From Nashville, Tennessee, it's the Guy Benson Show here today and for the weekend. Glad to have you on board and along. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. 
And the podcast also available for free every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. You got bonus Benson on the weekends. We definitely recommend that. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert. Not a good week on Wall Street. The Dow can't get off the schneid. Dow closes down 271 points, so sort of tanked at the very end of the trading day. And the Dow closes at the end of the week at 34,607. Well, in that first hour, we talked a lot about President Biden and I think his really tin-eared, in some ways misleading, more than some ways, I would just say outright misleading messaging and framing of the effectiveness of the vaccines, where it was just incoherent. He would say, oh, yes, they work well and they're safe and they're effective. They'd say, but what we really need to do is impose a bunch of government mandates to protect vaccinated people from the unvaccinated. And I think the message there is muddled at best. And I think a lot of people just don't trust the powers that be anymore. And I think performances like the president's yesterday help explain why. But there's the next component of this, and we will get to the constitutionality of the employer mandate in particular, with Andy McCarthy coming up later this hour. But I think the the most controversial part of what the president said yesterday, when you sort of strip out his angry tone and his churlish and I would say unfair attacks against Republican governors. It was the political and policy decision, heavy on political, for the federal government now to try to force all businesses, private businesses, companies with a hundred or more employees to mandate vaccines for their employees with the other option being a weekly testing. I think that there are all sorts of problems when it comes to implementation. Should this move forward, should it pass legal muster, which I'm not convinced it will, I think the way that it is or is not enforced will be a giant garbled mess. I think unintended consequences for businesses and the economy will crop up. You'd think we might learn a lesson from time to time. It's not like this is ancient history. We've been living through this. You, you might learn the lesson about unintended consequences from government mandates or shutdowns or restrictions. No, it's just sort of like, let's just keep going. That's the Biden approach here, I suppose, while, while lecturing. And at times he was angry. At times he was mournful. At times he was trying to be inspiring. And other times he was almost spiteful. It was all over the place. On substance and on tone. But here was that announcement. I'd say the crux of the controversy from yesterday's speech in Cut 10. Listen. So tonight, I'm announcing that the Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees that together employ over 80 million workers to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated or show a negative test at least once a week. 
So the pushback has been swift. Here's a quick montage of some Republican governors saying that they will not comply with this and that they will file lawsuits and challenges in court. I think the ink is not yet dry on a bunch of those challenges. Listen to Cut 22. To put them out of work and and send them and not let them earn a living because of this, I just think that that's fundamentally wrong. I do not believe that people should lose their jobs um, over this issue. And, um, and and we will fight that. I'll fight to protect my people and to defend their freedoms. In fact, it was shocked me that the president actually said in his speech today that this wasn't about freedom and personal choice at all. Americans take responsibility for their own personal health care. This is not the job of the governor. You would expect words like that from the president, maybe of communist China or of North Korea, but you don't expect words like that coming out of the mouth uh, of the president of the United States. Governor DeSantis, Governor Nome, and others in that quick montage. Today at the White House, Jen Psaki was asked about her reaction to the negative response from Republican governors who don't like the idea that the president is doing something that I think a lot of people agree is unconstitutional. Some are obviously going to push back and say, no, the government has wide latitude. They've got significant powers on public health issues. And I would say that they're is something to that there's maybe a mixed bag of jurisprudence based on the the early initial reading that i've done about this but what biden is trying to do here is say the federal government is going to essentially force the private sector to force their employees right their workers to to take a shot into their body as i've mentioned the constitutional question of this we will Put that to Andy McCarthy coming up. I think part of the problem here, and this goes to my story about Jen Psaki that I just started, is credibility and good faith. So Psaki was asked about the Republican pushback, and she said it's very disappointing, you know, it's problematic, you know, dangerous, I'm paraphrasing. Jen Psaki, a few weeks ago, was asked about federal vaccine mandates, and she said this in Cut 21. Let me be very clear on this. I know there's been lots of questions. Uh, The government is not now, nor will we be supporting a system that requires Americans to carry a credential. Uh, There will be no federal vaccinations database and no federal mandate requiring everyone to obtain a single vaccination credential. So that was part of what she said. She had previously, we played a clip yesterday of her saying, no, it is not the role, I'm quoting, it's not the role of the federal government to require vaccines on COVID-19. Those are her words. She's the White House spokeswoman. She's the press secretary for the President of the United States. She told the country on multiple occasions that there would not be a federal mandate. And that, in fact, it's not the role of the federal government to impose such a mandate. And now today, a few hours, like, you know, the day after her boss says, never mind, we're going to do it anyway. She's out there furrowing her brow and expressing disappointment that Republican governors take the same view that she told the country was her and the president's view a few weeks ago. 
Right? There are Republicans and conservatives and libertarians and others, independents, I'd imagine some Democrats as well, who may have a problem with this in terms of authority in the Constitution. They may have a problem with this in terms of the efficacy or the, uh, how constructive this is toward the goal of ending the pandemic. Was this a wise decision for some of the other reasons that I mentioned? Ripple effects, unintended consequences, tearing at the social fabric, intruding, invading further into people's lives. And look, again, I'll repeat, I'm a huge supporter and advocate for the vaccines for reasons that I spoke about at length in the first hour, again, as someone who is fully vaccinated. But authority and uh, and constitutionality matter a lot, as does credibility and whether people believe you. All right, so let's just sweep away for a second for the sake of this discussion. Let's sweep away whether or not this is legal. We'll ask Andy about it. There will be a big debate about it and... The lawsuits are already flying. Let's just pretend like that's not an issue just for a moment. Let's also sweep away questions of prudential judgment. Could this do more harm than good? Is this the right call for public health reasons? Let's focus just for a moment on the issue of trust. There's a lot of Deep, deep mistrust among the American people. I know the Biden administration probably doesn't want to think too hard about this or certainly not talk about it. But a lot of the people who remain unvaccinated in this country are people of color who are not traditional MAGA hat wearing Trump supporters. I know that they want to do battle with and go to war with Ron DeSantis and Republican governors. That's what they're hoping to get out of this. I'm cynical enough that I think they know in all likelihood this is not going to withstand scrutiny, but they can get brownie points with their base, they can have a big fight with Republicans, they can move on from their other failures and other crises, and at least get back to an area where they're not deep underwater in public opinion. Let's at least have the fight, and if it gets thrown out in court, guess what? They can demonize the court, because they like to do that as well on the left. When they don't get their way, they go after norms and institutions with a vengeance, even as they pretend that they are the guardians and defenders of norms and institutions, it is transactional and rooted in political outcome for many people on the left. So I think that's, again, my cynical, but I don't think very far-fetched take on part of what they're doing here. So you've got, for whatever reason, a lot of people on the right who are objecting to getting the vaccine and let me remind you, 70% of us are vaccinated. You know, we're, we're not you know, languishing in the 30s or 40s or something. We've got a supermajority of adults in this country vaccinated. That is an achievement that's good, that's right, left, and center. But there are a lot of people on the right still in this vocal minority who are holdouts, and there are people of color and people who are probably part of the more democratic-leaning coalition in this country who also, for whatever their reasons might be, they haven't been getting vaccinated. There's a lot of distrust, mistrust, skepticism. Now, some of it you're not going to fix because people are sort of kooky and cranky and they're going to believe conspiracy theories. And I'm not sure you can really 
persuade them. But that's also how things work in a free society. You can't just say, oh, well, you know, sorry, mandate whenever you feel like it. Especially if you are the executive in the federal government. We have a system where the government has certain powers and doesn't have another power. Doesn't have certain powers, especially at the federal level. Then it goes down to the next level of government, closer and closer to the people, right? Quick civics uh, civics lesson, because I think a lot of people seem to need it. But I come back to this word trust. When you have Jen Psaki at the White House telling people it's not the role of the federal government to mandate vaccines, and then they do it a few weeks later, and she's saying, oh, she's deeply disappointed in those who disagree. She's deeply disappointed in people who took her at her word and the president at his word just a few weeks ago. What does that do to trust? Not just on this issue, but across the board. Biden himself was asked about this after he was elected president. We played this clip yesterday, cut 19. No, I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand to be mandatory, but I would do everything in my power. Just like I don't think masks have to be made mandatory nationwide. I'll do everything in my power as the president of the United States to encourage people to do the right thing. Encourage. We'll encourage them. No, it shouldn't be mandatory. Here's Nancy Pelosi a few months ago. Cut 18. So here's the thing. We, are, we cannot require someone to be vaccinated. That's just okay, not what stop we right can there. Do. That's not what we can do, she says. We cannot require vaccination. That's the Speaker of the House. Joe Biden, president-elect, no, we're not going to mandate it. CDC director a few weeks ago, she just said it like late July. Nope, there will not be a federal vaccine mandate. White House press secretary a few weeks ago, no, it's not the federal role to mandate these things. And then effectively they turn right around and they do it. The thing they said they couldn't do, the thing that they said they wouldn't do, well, now they're going to try to find some way in the regulations to do it. How does that play in terms of the trust that people have in what the government tells them? I think it's insidious. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson, back here on The Guy Benson Show. We talked recently about the travails of the mayor of Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser, a Democrat, of course. And she had reimposed mask mandates, including for those who were vaccinated. And it seemed like the timing of the reimposition of the mandate, even though there was no public health data or case or hospitalization emergency at the time that came close to justifying it. She did it anyway. And it appeared that the timing may have been aligned with her own birthday party schedule, where she had her birthday party then the mask mandate went into place the next day. And then, of course, that next day, she was at a wedding and was photographed sitting at a table indoors, not wearing a mask. And they didn't really have an excuse for it. They attacked the journalist who wrote about it. They said, oh, she was eating, but there was video that proved that wasn't true. And so that's the type of hypocrisy that I think drives people completely up the wall, including me. 
Well, Mayor Bowser yesterday posted a photograph with her standing and smiling with a number of ladies. She said, I spoke tonight to students from around the country, gathered for a legislative summit. She talked about the passion of youth that gives her hope for the future, so on and so forth. And of course, she is not wearing a mask, the mayor. None of the women surrounding her are wearing masks. They are indoors. And people were just asking. She put this out there on her own Twitter feed, not even trying to pretend that she's in compliance with her own mandate that she has instituted across the district, a requirement where there are consequences for businesses, for other people. You have to follow the rules for public health, supposedly. But the mayor very obviously doesn't believe that it's necessary because she isn't abiding by her own rules and she isn't even pretending to abide by her own rules. And it reminds me sort of of the double standards at play. People were all mad because there were college football games over the weekend. In the Midwest and the South, look at all these super spreader events. Well, there were big outdoor gatherings of other sorts, concerts. There was a 5K in D.C. where Bowser was there. They were commemorating a new bridge, thousands of people participating. We didn't see all that hand-wringing about super spreaders when it came to that. It's almost like they pick and choose what people are mad about and which rules are important to follow based on their own personal preferences and convenience. And that makes it very hard to take seriously. And it contributes to this ongoing, this theme of erosion in public trust and credibility. And Mayor Bowser, she's almost seemingly proud of flouting the rules for thee, but not for she. It's The Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the program on this Friday... From Nashville, Tennessee, it's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Joining us is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, author of a number of books, including most recently Ball of Collusion. Follow him on Twitter at Andrew C. McCarthy. Andy, welcome back to the show. Guy, great to be with you. Andy, where were you 20 years ago tomorrow? I was back in... uh those good old days, Guy, um, I used to sort of kick myself in the butt and go out and run in the morning when we were living in Southport, Connecticut. So I was coming in right as the, uh, I turned the news on right as the first plane hit. And I, I, I was very surprised afterwards to hear a lot of government officials say that it wasn't until the second plane hit that they thought we were under attack. Because I guess because we had had the terrorism cases for eight years in New York and the World Trade Center had been such a obsession for the jihadists, there was never any question, not only in my mind, I think the people I worked with in the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York, there's never a question in any of our minds that it was a terrorist attack from the start. And in fact, before the second plane hit, I called my boss, Mary Jo White at the time, who was the 
U.S. attorney. And she basically said, you know, get your butt in here and gave me a rundown of like what we knew at that point. Um, and by the time I was getting myself ready to go, the second plane hit. So it's a terrible day. It was. And it's hard to believe in some ways that that was 20 years ago, I mean, two decades ago, because it's still so fresh in my mind. I was in high school at the time. I think anyone who lived through it, especially those of us in the New York area who knew people who died or knew people whose loved ones died, it's an indelible day in our memories and our collective memory as a country for those of us of a certain age and older. Broadening it out, Andy, because you've done a lot of thinking and writing about terrorism, given your background and your pedigree, are we safer 20 years on than we were? And is that an easy yes or no for you? It's not an easy yes or no because it's it's kind of a, a big part of our situation is better and a big part uh, is, if not worse, it's just as bad as it ever was. The, the good part, and this should give people some comfort, is that the protection of the homeland is night and day better today than it was 20 years ago because our government agencies work much better together today than they did. There were institutional, um, some of them were self-imposed, but there were, there were institutional blockings that existed in the early 90s right through 9-11 uh, that prevented the government from uh, having a, a full understanding of what the threat mosaic is. That doesn't exist anymore. They all cooperate well with each other. So that part of it is good. The part that's bad and maddening, as far as I'm concerned, is there's still a determination in the government, I call it mulishness, not to take on board our enemy's ideology, which I call Sharia supremacism. People have other terms for it. Some say radical Islam. But there, there's a very – this is not um, – this is a very developed ideology, and I think the way our government has presented it over time is that the violence is all wanton and there's no explanation for it, and you know the people committing it are, are you know just wackos who are uh, perverting the idea of religion by uh, waving it as they, uh, as they perform these atrocities. That simply isn't the case. This is an ideology about implementing Sharia law that's backed by 14, year, 14 centuries of scholarship. And I think we need to understand it. It's, it's, to me, it's criminally reckless to not understand it the same way, say, refusing to understand Soviet ideology would have been during the Cold War. For a lot of Americans, especially younger Americans, who may have faint memories of 9-11 or they've heard about it and they understand that it was a very dark day, but it's not personal really on any level to them. In some ways, the success of protecting the homeland, certainly from spectacular 9-11 style attacks, has been self-evident, as you point out. But it is also, I think for that reason, perhaps built in some complacency and a sense yeah. of invulnerability, like, okay, well, that was really bad. It happened 20 years ago. We haven't seen it since, so we're safe. I'm not saying that there's any imminent threat for anything close to 9-11 in the future, but I wonder if you can, in particular speaking to younger generations, 
Speak to the, if you agree with this premise, which I think you do, speak to the undiminished desire and motivation for radicals who very much still exist to inflict the same amount of harm and death and pain, if not more, on our country, however they might be able to do so again. Guy, I think it would be harder, just as an abstract matter, to to draw a picture of that if we didn't have a concrete example happening right before our eyes. So 9-11 was able to be carried out because the Taliban provided al-Qaeda with not only safe haven, but operational partnership with the regime. And it was due to that protection that they not only carried out 9-11, unfortunately, a lot of people who, who are a little bit educated about this kind of look at 9-11 as if it was a one-off. Right. When, in fact, when the Taliban took over Afghanistan, uh, al-Qaeda relocated to Afghanistan in 1996. And from there going forward, bin Laden declared war. They bombed the Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia, They killing 19 members of the U.S. Air Force. They bombed our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, which killed over 200 people, mostly Muslims. Uh, they almost sank our destroyer, the USS the Sullivans, in 1999. And then they did bomb the USS Cole and kill 17 of our sailors and nearly sink the destroyer in 2000. So... You know, any at any point, if al-Qaeda, and this was especially so after 9-11, if the Taliban had surrendered the leaders of al-Qaeda to the United States so that they could face trial, which is what we were doing with terrorists at the time, uh, they could have stayed in power. But they didn't. It would have been the easiest thing in the world for them, and they could have, they could have maintained their grip, and they didn't. And it was because they were as dedicated to what al-Qaeda was doing as Al Qaeda is, what and do you it's make? No surprise to you know, it's no surprise to read these new reports about what they're doing to people who they're hunting down for cooperating with the West. Andy, before we shift to domestic politics and constitutional questions, just briefly, your thoughts and reflections on top Taliban regime leaders, newly installed. I guess they're going to officially inaugurate this terrorist government tomorrow on September 11th. Not a coincidence. That's just another, I think, deliberate humiliation. But there are people at the very highest levels of that so-called government who were either most wanted terrorists with millions of dollars of bounties on their head from the United States or were in our custody at Guantanamo Bay and were released as part of that Bergdahl swap. That seems to be another insult to injury element as we await tomorrow's solemn anniversary. Yes. I'd say two things about this guy. One is um, it's the same old Taliban. I mean, the reason that this was an outrageous thing uh, at the time was that these five people that we released uh, to get the Taliban to the negotiating table, they didn't even have to agree to anything, just come to the table. They were all notorious leaders of the Taliban because they were very close to Mullah Muhammad Omar. So the idea, who was the founder of, of the Taliban, so the idea that the Taliban would change its spots when the same people are now in charge is just ridiculous. And the other thing I would ask people to concentrate on is this diplomatic charade that's going on in Doha and has been going on for a decade now. No one should think that anything the 
Taliban says in uh, diplomatic patois in Doha when they're sipping tea with Zal Khalilzad, the, the U.S. emissary, that that has any relevance to what goes on on the ground in Kabul or Mazar-e-Sharif or Kandahar. Um, the Taliban style is to make everyone understand what its interpretation of Sharia is and then to leave it to these young firebrands to take the law into their own hands and enforce it. That's the way they ran things 20 years ago. It's the way they're running things today. Andy, we saw yesterday a speech from the President of the United States. Among other things, he announced a new federal effort, really a mandate from the central government in Washington, D.C., forcing all businesses of 100 employees or more to require vaccinations for their employees or weekly testing. And we've talked about this throughout the show today, and we talked about it yesterday after the announcement and leading up to it. The president and many people at high levels of the U.S. government have said this would not be the case. They were not going to attempt federal mandates. They couldn't do it. Now they've done it. We've seen this before where elected officials and bureaucrats insist something is not possible and not within their purview or authority, then they turn around and do it anyway. There is already, of course, a huge constitutional fight underway. There are governors lining up to challenge this in court. There are legal experts insisting, no, no, this is perfectly legal, perfectly constitutional. There's broad leeway for the government, especially during a pandemic or a public health emergency, to uh, intervene in pretty significant ways. There are others saying absolutely not. This is a flagrant violation of the Constitution. The authority does not exist to do this, especially given it's the private sector that's involved and being sort of forced around and coerced by the government here. What is your take as an attorney on the constitutionality of this? And then if you want to offer a commentary on the politics of it, feel free. Guy, I would say as an originalist that this is utterly unconstitutional. However, the Supreme Court has made a hash of the original understanding of the uh, Commerce Clause, which is what will be most relevant. So I think this is going to be very much like the eviction moratorium, where the issue will be exactly what uh, legislative authority is OSHA uh, relying on in order to carry out Biden's mandate. And we'll probably skip over the question of whether the federal government has authority here at all. But the Supreme Court was very strong in the eviction uh, moratorium case to say that when something is an area of traditional state control, and vaccine mandates certainly are, that the federal government can't act unless there's an absolutely crystal clear congressional unambiguous blessing of it. And I don't think that will be in this, but that will be the case here. So I think It'll be the same thing as the eviction moratorium. But just on the broader point, uh, I've heard a lot of smart commentary, including on your show, about the difficulty Biden has had and will have going forward of getting legislation through. And I would just prepare people for the idea that the way the administration is going to try to satisfy its left flank, which is the one it has the biggest trouble with, is to use the Justice Department to do these sorts of things and to try to push as far as they can push these very loose precedents about the uh, Commerce Clause, because they're not going to get satisfaction on Capitol Hill. Uh, you're going to see a very active Justice Department. Well, that's why I'm particularly grateful that the Supreme Court of the United States looks the way it does now compared to even a few years ago. And there are a lot of people who deserve credit for that. 
including Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell and others who got a lot of heat. And I think that they're going to be a bulwark against some massive overreach because Biden has made it crystal clear he is more than happy to do things that he himself has said he wouldn't do and couldn't do, which, again, shouldn't necessarily be a surprise because the man under whom he served when he was vice president did the same thing on a number of different occasions. And on the constitutional envelope pushing front, Donald Trump did the same thing and, in fact, was uh, reprimanded or pulled back by the Supreme Court, as a matter of fact, on some occasions. So the temptation is always there. And it's good to know or reassuring to know, at least for now, that the judicial branch seems to still care about what the Constitution has to say, even if elected officials do not. Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, Fox News contributor. Always appreciate your time, Andy. And I know that tomorrow is going to be a tough day for a lot of us, yourself included. And uh, we look forward to talking again soon. Guy, thanks so much and for shining a light on this day because it needs to be remembered. You bet. Andy McCarthy on The Guy Benson Show, back right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. The Guy Benson Show is back on this Friday. Thank you for listening every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. Let's do a little Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Woo! I saw this in the Daily Wire, and you just have to roll your eyes. Couldn't resist bringing this to you in a Woke Tales segment. Headline, Constitution, Declaration of Independence now have trigger warnings on National Archives website. I would quickly note and call back to a previous Woke Tales, where we made clear that according to the new rules and the ever-changing lexicon, trigger warning, that term itself is now triggering and problematic and needs to be banished because there are gun-related images conjured by the word trigger. So trigger warning is already out of date within the Woke vocabulary. But here's the story. Digital copies of America's founding documents as well as other historical documents in the National Archives online catalog, now feature trigger warnings alerting readers that they may contain harmful language. And the change appears to follow the release of a little-notice report from a National Archives racism task force that suggested the agency provide context for its historical materials. The Archives website does not specify why the Constitution, the Declaration, or Bill of Rights received these warnings, But their overall statement indicates that documents and historical materials are marked as having, quote, harmful language when they reflect racist, sexist, ableist, misogynoir. I don't know what that even is. Misogynoir? That's a new one for me. I don't even know how to pronounce it. And xenophobic opinions and attitudes. See, I've just committed a hate crime there because I don't know what the word misogynoir means. Another category for these warnings are when documents are discriminatory towards or exclude diverse views on sexuality, religion, gender, and more, or demonstrate bias and exclusion of institutional collecting and digitization policies. So we have a harmful content warning from the U.S. archives, the National Archives, on the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. 
on their website. So that's how things are going on this Friday. Also saw this story up north of the border in Canada. An Ontario school board has held a, quote, flame purification ceremony, a burning of dozens of books that were deemed offensive to indigenous people. That's in advance of a wider purge of thousands of books at dozens of schools in the district up in Canada. They're literally burning books. I have no idea what the books are. Just rule of thumb, guys. If you're participating in a book burning, you're not the good guys. I think history has made that pretty clear. But I guarantee you they think that they are. The self-righteousness and the preening just emanates off of people like this. Good old-fashioned book burning for progress, you see. That's Woke Tales, and the final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up right after this. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Final hour of the broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. It is Friday. Thank you for being here. GuyBensonShow.com, that's our website. The podcast, free of charge every single day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. And this hour, we call it the happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is refreshing and delicious. I recommend it. If you're 21 years of age or older, of course. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where it's sold near you. They are expanding due to popularity. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Well, tomorrow, as we have mentioned several times over the course of the show today, is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And that's sort of hard to fathom for me. I was a 16-year-old high schooler. I remember walking into the building in northern New Jersey that day, that morning, thinking that the weather was perfect. It was clear. It was crisp. A little chill. It's my favorite kind of weather. And by the end of that day, my town alone had lost 12 people in lower Manhattan. And the nation will pause and will mourn tomorrow the passage of 20 years since that unthinkably horrible day. And the phrase or the aphorism or the slogan, never forget, gets thrown around a lot. I think for something like 9-11... It is apropos. We shouldn't forget. We can't forget. And in order to achieve that goal, in order to live the mantra, never forget, we must listen to stories. Stories like the ones we're going to hear now from our next guests. Lisa Friedman and her son, Mike Friedman. Lisa lost her husband on 9-11. He was on the 92nd floor of the North Tower in the World Trade Center. Her son, Mike, who's got a twin brother, Dan, he lost his father 
You may have seen them on Fox and Friends. They tried to turn an unbelievable tragedy in their lives into something good, and we will get to that. But before we move on to that component, let me first welcome Lisa and Mike to the show. Thank you so much for doing this, guys. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Thank you for having us. Lisa, please, just if you would, talk to us about that day, because there are certain memories that I think are seared into my mind, certainly, uh, from 9-11-2001. There are a lot of people in our listening audience, especially on the podcast, who are younger, who have hazy memories or no memories of 9-11. What was that day like for you? Uh, Well, as everybody that does remember knows, it was just the most beautiful, crisp, clear fall day. It was gorgeous out or late summer day, and um, I was at work. I, um, at the time, was a regional manager for a large bank, and so I had branches all over Long Island, and I had gone to one of the branches to meet with the branch manager, and I was on a conference call first with my boss, who was in Manhattan, and he had all the regional managers reported into him. So somewhere around 10 to 9, my friend, you know, one of my um, colleagues, said, Lisa, um, doesn't Andy work in the World Trade Center? And I said, sure. And she's like, well, you may want to get off the phone and look at the TV set. There's been a terrible accident. So, you know, I couldn't really fathom what it was. I figured, you know, it might have been like a prop jet that popped off or something. Not that that wouldn't have been horrific, because it would have been. Right. But, you know, I, I guess I didn't take it that seriously. My husband had only been there for two weeks. He had just gotten a brand new job. And I remember when he got the job, and he told me it was on the 92nd floor of the World Trade Center. I, I took pause on that one. I was like, you sure you want to do this? And he said, who thinks like you? You know, <laughs> I think like me. Anyway, so um, I bring the TV in, I put it on, and I couldn't catch my breath. Um, and at that point, by the time I rolled the TV in, the second tower had gotten hit. And I was looking at the, fo- at the, at the two burning buildings and saying, oh, my God, I don't know which one he's in. But based on my knowledge of the World Trade Center, if he was in the North Tower, the first one that got hit, it would have hit right where he was. And if he was in the South Tower, um, he'd be above it, but how would he get down? So anyway, I'm freaking, you know, interrupt me if you want me to stop. But anyway, the the net net is he called me and I I didn't say anything because I heard him. He was in in a room. He said, we're in a room. We have plenty of air. And I heard people crying in the background. I heard people had broken out the windows. Um, and and I just said, I love you, because he, it, he called me at 9.16. And in my heart, I knew if he could have gotten down, he would have gotten down. So the, big, the other problem was is the way that the, um, the TV uh, uh, broadcasters were talking about it. They kept calling it the first tower, the second tower, the north tower, the south tower. But Andy had only been there two weeks. I only knew he worked at One World Trade Center. Like, I didn't know north, south. I didn't know which was which. You know what I mean? So, again, it turns out he was on the 92nd floor below, one floor below the, the, the impact of the North Tower. The, the plane hit between 93 and 90 and 98. So, what, even though he was below it, um, they couldn't get down because the, the um, stairwell um, collapsed above 91 so everyone on 91 lived and everyone on 92 died he was you know unfortunately one floor too high and he was 44 years old did you know it's you kind of indicated there did you know in your heart on that phone call that this was the last time you'd speak to him yes 
which is which is why I didn't say anything. I was in shock. I said, "I love you." That was it. I didn't want to frighten him. I didn't want to start to cry. I don't. I didn't know how if he knew how bad it was. You know what I mean? I didn't know, so I didn't want to. I didn't want to frighten him. So I didn't say anything. It was just you know you're on a call and, and you think it's your last call with somebody. I mean, I had so many things I wanted to tell him, but I didn't. I didn't say anything. I just, I just, I just, um, I was scared. I didn't want to frighten him. And I don't think he wanted to frighten me. So, anyway. It's it's just so hard. It's so hard to listen to because my father had passed through the World Trade Center earlier that morning. That was part of his commute. Oh, God. We had some trouble getting in touch with him for a while. And, you know, the worst case scenario starts to play out in your head. Even if you think the chances are slim. Right. And... And you start to kind of panic a little bit. And thank God, in my case, he was safe. He was able to to run up, you know, uptown and get out of that area. But for many other yeah. families, thousands of other families, that yeah. nightmare came true. How did you convey this to your children? When and how did you decide yeah. they need to know? Yeah. Well, what happened was that day somebody picked them up from school early. I, you know, first of all, I called the school and I said, I spoke to Andy. He's fine because I needed time to figure out what in the world I was going to do. Exactly your question. So my friend picked them up. They went and had a play date. They went swimming. They had dinner. So they were, they were out of, out of my, my, my reach probably for eight or nine hours, which gave me time to process how I was going to handle it. And frankly, at the beginning, when they came, they thought everything was fine until they came home that night and they saw all the cars in the, in the driveway and whatnot. That night, I just, I didn't say anything. I just said, you know, there was an accident. They're looking for everybody. Um, and that was how I thought was the right way to, to handle it. But what I didn't realize when you're dealing with young children, they were only 11, they start perseverating on, on that. Let's call the Red Cross again. Let's call the Red Cross again. Let's call the Red Cross again. So it was like, it was like a broken record for that whole week. And as a matter of fact, on Friday, I had spoken to a psychologist and she suggested that we kind of turn our concern outward instead of sitting and keeping it internal. And the way I kind of um, um, conceptualized that was I took the boys into the city and we made a flyer, you know, have you seen this man? And we went from firehouse to firehouse to hot. We went up to Lenox Hill. We were at Mount Sinai. We went to, you know, we went to the Upper East Side because they didn't know downtown from uptown. They were 11. And we, we, we gave out socks. And the reason we gave out socks is because the first responders were saying they needed them. And so we, um, we, we gave out the socks so that, um, you know, I wanted them to feel like they weren't just sitting around doing nothing. I wanted them right. to feel like they, they were, were achieving something. They were helping. Right. They were, they were helping. So anyway, the next day, coincidentally, was um, Rosh Hashanah. It was the Jewish holiday. And so we went to Temple, and it was just the three of us, and it was horrific. And when I got home, for whatever reason, I was inspired. I sat, I sat down, we sat in the den, and I brought them close, and I just said, you know, um, Dad's not coming home. And the psychologist told me the kids have a very hard time living in a gray zone. It's got to be black and white. So she said, tell them he's not coming home and that he was killed. And if, you know, by some miracle, he's, he's okay. You'll you'll celebrate. So that's what I did, and and it, I, I kind of think it was a relief for them because it was just too hard to 
ruminate over and over right, the, and over again. The uncertainty. Again about, you just torture yeah. yourself, I would imagine. It, it, Mike, it was torture. That's the only way to describe it, it was torture. Oh, well, that's just a gut punch. Mike, I want to bring you into this, and we will do so as soon as we come back. Quick break. It's the Guy Benson Show, almost 20 years after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Lisa and Mike Friedman, my guests, will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. We are back. Not a very happy subject on this happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show. My guests are Lisa and Mike Friedman. Lisa lost her husband, Mike, his father, on 9-11-2001. Mike, I want to bring you in because I'm a few years older than you are. I was 16 at the time. You were 11. You're now in your early 30s. I think being in high school, it was, it was still very, very difficult to process. Talk about that day and that series of days from an 11-year-old's perspective. You were, what, in, in middle school and trying to make sense of this completely senseless day, I would imagine. Yeah, so uh, the day started off like normal. Uh, it was my second week of middle school, or our second week of middle school. Um, I remember the night before, we were watching TV. We were watching the New York the Giants versus the Broncos on Monday Night Football. Our dad was a huge sports fan, and we can hear him yelling at the TV, screaming, saying why the Giants are not playing well, and they end up getting beat pretty badly. (laughs) Sounds Um, familiar. (laughs) So, unfortunately, so the next morning when we woke up, we would get a piece of paper with the score because our dad used to write down the score of each game that we couldn't watch um, when we were kids. So that day we went to school. Um, It was pretty normal. And I want to say it was my third period English class that um, there was a knock on the door and it was our principal and wanted to speak to me. So I went outside and the principal basically told me that two planes had just hit in the World Trade Center, that your dad is fine. He's got plenty of air. He spoke to your mom and you should just go about your day normally. And outside I was feeling OK. I was feeling, you know, as if, OK, he's just he was in an accident, but he'll still come home. Inside, though, I knew something wasn't right. I knew, I just, I've had this numb feeling that, yeah, something was wrong. And it remained that way for the rest of the day. Um, my brother and I got, got to get out, get out of school early. We went to a friend's house. We had a play date. Uh, we went swimming. We had dinner. And it was just a pretty relaxing uh, afternoon, even though it was anything but relaxing on the outside. And then I, the, the last thing I remember was my brother and I going home that night and seeing a ton of cars in our driveway and going inside, giving our mom a big hug. She just told us she loved us, uh, but she wanted us to do our homework, which we did. Uh, we did our homework and went to sleep, and we just thought, okay, Dad's probably cleaning himself up, but I'll come home. The following day, when he didn't come home and we didn't go to school, is when it really hit me. And I said, okay, something, something, something happened. And then as the days followed, he still didn't come home. And that's when our mom took us into New York City. We went to the different hospitals, fire departments, police stations. And we just had a sliver of hope that maybe we could find him. But in the back of my mind, I thought he was not going to come home. 
and it was painful. It was brutal. And then the reality of the situation was so strong when we had to speak at his memorial service and deliver his eulogy to over 2,000 people in, in a pretty small town of uh, Woodbury, New York, which was one of the hardest things I've ever had to have done, one of the hardest things Dan had to have done. And all that brings me was times of sadness, um, sorrow, and just a situation that I wish no family would ever have to have gone through. And unfortunately, we were one of 3,000 families that went through it. It was tough. It was really tough. I cannot imagine having to do that ever, let alone at the age of 11. I have one more question before we get to what you have done with this and how you've tried to turn this on some level into a, a positive to continue to help people, and that is the anniversaries. As each year unfolds and they have the solemn ceremonies and they read the names and they, you know, the bells toll and we go through this ritual each year, how has that experience changed over time? Has it changed over time? Lisa. So, truthfully, you know, my husband was um, a very upbeat person. He would, he was, um, I, I, let me preface it by saying, I had met Andy in 1983, and in 19, I was in college, and in 1985, when I had just graduated school and started working, I had ovarian cancer. And he stuck by my side through chemotherapy and the whole nine yards. He was the most amazing man with more integrity than anybody I've ever met. So that's just as a backdrop. But aside from that, he was a fun guy. Like, nothing got Andy down. He wasn't a worrier. He wasn't concerned about anything. He was just upbeat all the time. So when 9-11 happened, you know, me and the kids kind of, we sat down and we kind of, we talked it through and we decided that, you know, what he would want is for us to continue to dance is the only way to describe it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so on 9-11, rather than go down to the World Trade Center and um, um, just be brought down and, 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 and feel bad and see other people crying and whatnot, we decided we wanted to do the thing that Andy would enjoy the most so we could celebrate him instead of kind of, you know, um, feeling blue. And um, Andy's favorite thing in the world was going to Peter Luger's and having a great big steak. So, and for those people that don't know, that's a restaurant in New York. Yeah, and it's famous in Brooklyn. And, yeah, very st famous steakhouse. So every 9-11, we go there with um, some of his best friends from growing up. And Mike is going to tell you how that translates to our new business because there's a there's connection there as well. But a lot of his friends are still our dearest friends. I like all his, all of my children's godfathers, if you know what I mean. So um, we all go to Peter Lugas and we, t we tell stories about Andy and we laugh and we cry and that's what we do. Wow. Uh, that is so sad and also so beautiful. Thank you. And that's, that's an incredible answer. I'm just trying to keep it together here myself. In fact, let's uh, take a quick break. And when we come back, I do want to shift to this business that your son started, Mike, and he's with us, and his twin brother, Dan, and it was sort of inspired by the act of donating socks to first responders. That spawned a business that continues to this day. We will get to that right after this. It's The Guy Benson Show. We are back. Not a very happy subject on... 
You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We continue here on the Guy Benson Show, our final hour of the week. Hope you're enjoying your Friday. If you're just tuning in, with me are Lisa and Mike Friedman. Lisa lost her husband, Andrew, on 9-11 in the Twin Towers. Mike was 11 years old at the time. Her son, he has a twin brother, Dan, and they both told this story about going into the city in the days immediately following the terrorist attacks and helping with donations of socks to first responders because the first responders, their feet were getting wet and getting cold. And so this is what they sort of latched onto to try to help, which was a lovely sentiment and a, a wonderful act. It then has turned into a business. And so, Mike, if you could just explain Tall Order, which is the name of this business, uh, we sort of know the background now. How has that developed over time? Yes. So uh, in 2017, uh, we launched our company, Tall Order. And at Tall Order, we provide fun, fashionable socks, very comfortable, very breathable. They stay up on the calf. There's uh, moisture wicking. There's all-day comfort, seamless toe. No, no rips, no tears, and they stay up really nice. Um, and they're not just for tall men. They're for all. So we have three shoe sizes, 9 to 11, 12 to 15, and 16 to 20. But the goal of Tall Order is about giving back and paying it forward, even in tough times. We do that by giving a portion of what we do to, a, a nu- to numerous health and human service organizations. One of them is Tuesday's Children. And Tuesday. Children was formed in the aftermath of September 11th to help the families like myself and my brother uh, with grief counseling and support programs and a way to bring all the kids together to say, hey, you're not alone. We're here for you. And now they go into other communities that have suffered traumatic loss, including Gold Star families, families of the fallen, um, and just their way of saying, we're, we're here for you and you won't ever feel alone. Another organization that we donate to is the Feel Good Foundation. So um, on our website, tallorder.com, we have what's known as the Feel Good Sock, where we donate um, all proceeds from that sock to the Feel Good Foundation to help the first responders and rescue workers of September 11th. It's basically our way of saying, hey, when you wear a pair of Tall Order socks, you look good, you feel good, and you do good. Tallorder.com is the website for this business. And, of course, it's an outgrowth of this act of service that this family performed dealing with just unfathomable heartbreak, having lost a husband and a father at the hands of terrorists on September 11, 2001. Only about 30 seconds left. Lisa, I want to close with you. To the American people listening, our audience right now, as they think about 20 years of time passing and this anniversary tomorrow, what do you want to say to the country? What's on your heart? Well, there's two things that are on my heart. Number one, I want to say thank you, because I wouldn't be where I am today had it not been for the, for the, for the kindness of so many people out there. And that's why we call the company Tall Order. It's not because we're tall, although we are. It's because it's a tall order to pay it forward. So the first thing is thank you. And, and when we're united, there's nothing we can't do. And then the other thing I want to say is... Um, I'm I, I'm I'm worried for us because I feel like we 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 did a lot in this country to try to stave off future terrorist attacks and we're kind of back in the same boat we were 20 years ago. So um, 
Uh, I just, um, but on my heart, I say thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you to all the first responders. Thank you to our military and these brave souls that went over to Afghanistan and Iraq to fight. And um, I just pray for us that that we'll stay safe and something like this never happens again. Lisa and Mike Friedman, my guests here on The Guy Benson Show, I can't thank you enough. Um, Our thoughts are with you ahead of tomorrow's anniversary, 20 years since 9-11. Have a wonderful, as best you can, have a wonderful dinner at Peter Luger's. Have a great steak. Tell those stories. Keep the memory alive. And as I said at the top, never forget means something to me. So thank you for sharing your story. Have a good day. You too. We'll be right back with the home stretch where we will lighten things up just a little bit. I think we need to on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Home stretch on this Friday on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. Our online home free podcast available every day. And as promised and as teased, producer Christine rejoins us because she's got questions. I spent... Friday through Tuesday in Napa Valley, California, our two-year wedding anniversary, which was technically the seventh, but we spent a few days out there with my parents and Adam's parents. We had a great time. We were supposed to do this one year ago, get the whole crew together and go back out to Napa, which is where we were married in 2019, but COVID plus wildfires intervened, and we postponed the entire trip by exactly one calendar year. We rented a house right near St. Helena. We did all sorts of cooking and eating and wine tasting and probably far too much drinking, honestly. It wasn't completely out of control, but it was a lot. And I did some limited exercise. I'd go for little runs and walks every day. But as I mentioned earlier in the week when I got back, even though it was late, it was like 1030 at night, I did a Peloton ride anyway, just because my body was yelling at me, you have abused me, it is time to engage in some strenuous exercise. But being off just for a couple days and celebrating the anniversary and being with our families and our parents, seeing some friends, it was amazing. And I documented some of it with photos and that sort of thing on my Instagram in particular, at Guy P. Benson on Instagram, just like Twitter. Guy P. Benson on both Instagram and Twitter. You can go check out some of those pics or videos if you have any interest. Someone who does have a lot of interest and, in fact, was trying to get invited along as a seventh wheel, if you will, is our very own producer, Christine, and she has been chomping at the bit to engage in a curious Christine session about the Napa trip. So without indulging too much, Christine, feel free to ask a couple questions since you and I spoke and texted a little bit less than usual while I was on vacation. And I know any alcohol-centric trip of any sort is typically something that piques your attention and interest. Oh, I really enjoyed some of the pictures you had on Instagram. I think one of them was like a flight of wine. Oh, and I just perked up. I think I, I wrote to you and I said, oh, all that mama's juice. Very, very you did. But, um, I, uh, first, I just want to say happy anniversary. Um, Thank you. Our wedding two years ago was unbelievable. Uh, I wish we could go back to that day because that was really one of the best weddings uh, Bobby and myself have ever been to. So just to clarify, uh, when you say, when you, for new listeners who have just started tuning in recently or checking out the podcast, when you say our wedding, this was a common refrain back leading up to my wedding to Adam 
to which, yes, you were invited, you sort of had this special way of referring to it as our wedding, sort of like a royal we taking ownership partially of this wedding weekend. I just want to clarify for the audience, uh, we, the two of us, are not in fact married. You were an invited guest along with your husband to the wedding. I just want to make sure that everyone understands that. Sure. I mean, (laughs) you have to... Fine, go ahead, explain yourself away. But I did I did feel like that was just as much my wedding. We were I mean, we had been planning it. We had been talking about it every day leading up to it. I was there. The only thing I was a little upset with, and we talked about this, is I was not invited to give a speech. But I assume at the tenth anniversary, because we're gonna do this all again, I will probably be making a speech. So you're just um, you're I mean, identifying you're identifying that wedding as partially yours in your mind. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes, and what a beautiful wedding it was. It was now, great. Did you guys go back to both places? Did you go back to where we had the um, rehearsal dinner and then where we had the wedding? We did. We spent maybe about half an hour at Charles Krug, the winery where we actually got married. And it was cool. This guy sort of wandered out of the building right near that venue in sort of the meadow where we got married. And he had a beer in his hand, and he introduced himself like, hey, you know. And it turned out he was the father of a bride who was getting married there the next day. So he said, do you have any tips for us since you did this two years ago? Because we explained, and they're completely using the space differently than we are, which is kind of cool, right? It's, it's a large area, and so you can just pick different locations for the ceremony itself and afterwards the cocktail hour and the reception and all of that so we went back there we took a few photos right on that little plot of land where we were married and kennedy was officiating our friend of course here at fox news some great photos of her and she just had a birthday so happy birthday to kennedy so we went back there took some photos bought a bottle of wine there that we had with dinner later that night we also met with our friend candace and her brother george candace is part of really the family almost that runs that small little boutique winery up on Pritchard Hill, David Arthur, where we had the rehearsal dinner and welcome party, which was just such a spectacular evening with the sunset and the music and the food and all that. It brought back memories for sure, walking through the vines, tasting that amazing wine that they make up there. The family, David and Laura, happened to be there, and and they welcomed us. And it was just really, really special to go back to those same places and to talk through and relive some of those memories. And the cherry on top, Christine, the food at our wedding. You may remember we had it coursed out. We had this fantastic local chef in Napa who did all of it, and we were so impressed with him. He blew away my expectations at the tasting. His name is Gary. And we contacted Chef Gary before this anniversary trip. We said, do you have any room in your schedule to cook a dinner for us. And you can oh. tell us what it would cost per head. He ended up coming to the house where <gasps> we were staying, where we rented the place. He came with an assistant and cooked a multi-course meal for us. And we sat around in the screened-in porch, so quasi-outdoors. We were drinking some David Arthur wine, and we tasted his food again. And it was just sublime, over the top, such an indulgence, but worth it for anniversary number two so we kind of retraced the steps in some ways and it was awesome it was a really really spectacular time now i assume i probably would have saw pictures of this but i do have to ask because you did do this last time did you get back to french laundry because i know you went there 
a couple days before your wedding, right? Well, unlike Governor Gavin Newsom, we don't have a standing invite, apparently, or a standing reservation, no matter what the restrictions might be. So, no, we that's a really hard place to get into, right? You have to make those reservations very far in advance. And I guess we could have tried since this was two years in the making this trip. But it's also not just elaborate, but exorbitantly expensive. And so we felt like between grilling, which we did, and some pizza, which we had, our really splurred special meal was the chef coming to the house. We were kind of topped out there. We were, we were maxed out on food and beverage budget, and that would have just been totally blown through the roof if we had tried to go to the French Laundry because it's an experience. It's kind of maybe a once-in-a-lifetime thing, maybe more than once-in-a-lifetime but you need to budget multiple hours and so much money. We just decided not to pursue that path this time. Even though our time there was amazing and memorable and the reputation exists for good reason, just not on this trip. It would have been, I think, a little bit too much. And You know, it's, money doesn't grow on trees. All right. I get it. You're just waiting till I get out there. That's fine. Right. We yes, can exactly. figure that out. Yes. Because, uh-huh. I mean, of sure. course, cookies should be at the French Laundry, don't you think? You know, I feel like we could just tell Cookie that we had French Laundry reservations. And at the very last minute, say, oh, you know, they had a kitchen fire. But don't worry, we're ordering Domino's. And we'll put some pineapple <laughs> on the pizza, and you would be just as happy, which is why I feel like the French Laundry experience might, might be a little lost on you. I have to tell you, uh, we had our family, Bobby's family from Massachusetts, down for the weekend, and we were going to order pizza. And I had said, guys, do you want to try the Domino's pineapple bacon pizza? I'm telling you, it's good. And that was like a hard no from the whole family. Good. They're like, please just get us proper, you know, because in New Jersey, it's kind of like the proper New York pizza. You have like really good pizza places. They're like, please, can we just have the, the correct pizza? I said, you're missing out. You are missing out. No, they're, they're um, not. I have one question for you. You had, it wasn't a band. Who was it that played the music? My husband and I were trying to figure it out over the weekend. It was one of the, I, I guess you wouldn't call it a band, but it was like the best musical entertainment at a wedding I had ever seen before. And I'd never seen something like that. But the people like playing pianos, but they were like singing all the good songs. Yeah, it was dueling pianos. Yeah. Oh, my God. They were unbelievable. They were really talented. Yep. Ryan and Liz were their names. And if you've ever been, if you're listening to like a piano bar or like a Howl at the Moon who's one of the chains around the country where they've got two dueling pianos and they can play basically literally anything. Right. And you can make requests. And uh, in this case, they also had a drummer as well. And Ryan also played the guitar, as did Liz. I mean, they could do everything, but for the most part, it was two pianos, occasional guitar, and drums. And we had a list of songs that we asked them definitely to play. And then other people could request songs along the way. And that was another amazing highlight, right on the lawn there of Charles Krug. And I could have danced and partied for a few more hours, but there was a hard stop. Napa has a local ordinance, all loud music, all loud sounds. It has to be absolutely done, 10 p.m. sharp. So that was our heart out, and it probably worked out for the best because you always want to leave them wanting more. And I certainly wanted more, 
And it was funny just standing again on that lawn where we had pointed out on the air here, Nancy Pelosi just had her recent fundraiser that became somewhat controversial because no one was wearing masks except for the staff. Same exact location, standing there sort of in the middle of the afternoon and just closing your eyes for a moment and remembering what it was like with those tables and the dance floor and the pianos and the fountain and the lights. And it was, of course, the same location, but sort of unrecognizable from a sensory perspective. But it all came flooding back in the best possible way. That is unbelievable. I can just imagine it myself. And I'll leave you with this guy. Since I'll probably be put in charge of organizing your 40th birthday, I'll remember the dueling pianos, and I'll plan accordingly. (laughs) You'll produce that 40th birthday party. Well, you've got, thank goodness, you've got years in advance (laughs) to start lining them up. Because unlike certain other people who work on the show, I'm still years off from 40. Thank you very much. But let's circle that date. Gosh, what will that be? 2025? 2026, I think? So... Feel free. You can make an initial inquiry. I know you like to get guests booked very early if possible. So you can drop a line saying, hey, are you guys available three and a half years down the line? And see what they come back with. Just maybe don't use my name yet. Do me a favor. Producer Christine, it was really cool. And maybe one day you and Bobby will get back out there as well because it's a beautiful part of the world. And it was such a pleasure to spend it with Adam, special weekend, but also all four of our parents very meaningful, but as is so often the case, by the last day of the trip, I'm sort of getting back into the news cycle and back into the bloodstream of politics, and I was just eager, eager, eager to get back behind this microphone, and here we are. But we've arrived at the weekend. Have a great weekend, a solemn day tomorrow commemorating the 9-11 anniversary. We will be back here on Monday with a brand new week of The Guy Benson Show. Good evening from Nashville. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.